The number of garments that people throw out in my home state of California has reached epic proportions. We're now filling the landfill with 1.2 million tons of textile waste per year, according to state agency CalRecycle. And we in California, (laughs) we're not alone. This issue of textile waste is a global phenomena, with concentrated consumption in the global north and an ever-expanding dumping ground in the global south. While we're consuming and throwing away textiles at epic proportions, sustainability programs at the world's largest fashion companies are also expanding. For example, the world's largest fast fashion company, Shein, recently hired its first sustainability officer. How sustainability is measured for the world's largest companies is currently not commensurate with what Earth's systems require to regenerate. We know that the textile industry has created its own systems of measurement, and they use these systems to declare success and to also declare failure, to avoid materials, practices, and approaches they deem quote-unquote unsustainable. And yet in the process of the industry making its own decisions on which fibers are and are not sustainable, we have seen that time-honored materials, such as silk, have received the label of the most polluting fiber on our planet today. But why? This is Weaving Voices, a podcast that stitches textile tradition, economic philosophy, and climate science into a quilt of understanding, designed to transform our thinking and actions both as citizens and material culture makers and users. I'm Rebecca Burgess, the host of this Whetstone Radio Collective series, which aims to explore the nexus of modern-day economic design and the history of textiles and our contemporary relationship to them. In this episode, we talk about all things silk. Brazilian agronomist Jao Berdu and London-based analyst Veronica Casatli help unpack how silk production helps rural communities, how it empowers women, and how it's light on the earth, but how big businesses have tried to push it down in favor of more polluting yet cheaper materials like plastic. We begin in Brazil with Jao Berdu, who's been working with silk growers since 1992. He's currently working to develop a supply chain for Brazil's silk growers after being inspired by what he saw in Italy, where he observed numbers of decentralized small companies working together and adding value to silk and making glorious textiles. At current, Brazil is actually exporting 95% of its silk as just a raw commodity. Jao hails from the Val da Cida in Brazil. This translates from the Portuguese into English as Silk Valley. It's the largest cocoon-producing region in the Western world. He says from Uzbekistan to the West, there is no region or country that produces a similar amount or quality of silk than Brazil. The work that Berdu is focused upon is similar to the work our Fibershed community has been doing in North Central California which is we have a goal of placing manufacturing centers within the communities that produce the raw materials. Berdu, like many of us who work in agriculture, are pining to see the reinvestment in quality manufacturing and value addition that can uplift our rural economies. 
We export it as raw silk to Japan and to Vietnam and to France. It is possible to add value on it. But it's not easy because you must have the value that will be perceived by the end user. And most part of the silk attends the end user that are interested in luxury. But the high contribution that silk gives to sustainability, I believe, will make it possible for us to have it and to use this and to inform the end users how good they are doing for the environment when they use silk. To get a feel for the amount of work that goes into silk production, we first start at the beginning with the basics. Silk is a natural protein fiber that some caterpillars produce in order to protect themselves inside a cocoon during the period that they transform from caterpillar to moth. A silk cocoon is made of one single and very long filament expelled during four days by the silkworm. In the case of Brazilian variety, this filament is 1.2 kilometers long. 1.2 kilometers, or about three quarters of a mile long. And it will be completely reeled with only one or two breaks from the beginning to the end. Eight cocoons are reeled together to produce the most common raw silk yarn. And this yarn made with the filament of eight cocoons has one-tenth of the diameter of a human hair. So it's very, very thin. With the ability to insulate from heat and from cold and the strength that this filament has, it's clear nature has produced this to create all of these amazing properties for the survival of the moth and the caterpillar. When humans are privileged enough to wear this material, all of these insulating properties and natural strength translate to the textile. Silk is insulating and will act as a natural barrier protecting the wearer from the variation of temperature but also providing a textile that is durable and will last. Purdue notes that the production of silk is 5,000 years old, and it's actually beneficial to humans and silkworms. During this period, some silkworms have been protected from hunger, diseases, natural enemies, bad weather, by farmers interested in their cocoon. So the agreement was we protect them to be extinct and they give us the cocoon. A good agreement for both species, we believe. It's an incredible exchange of efforts between human and moth. And in the process of producing a textile, there's what we call a co-product or food source. The pupa in Thailand, in Vietnam and in China, it is eaten by, by people. It has a lot of protein and fat and it is uh, natural because it has no pesticide, no antibiotics, nothing. So it is uh, completely natural. In Japan, it is used for fishing. And in Brazil, we use them in uh, cattle feeding. And uh, the sericine and the fibrin, that are the proteins that silk are made of, can be used also in medicine. Purdue offered us insight into what the silkworm eats and what kind of farming he supports as an agronomist in his own watershed. He paints a picture of what farming looks like. There are these 2,900 small farm households, all producing cocoons. The size of these individual farms in Brazil is very small 
It's about two hectares, or about the area of two soccer fields. And these farms are usually run by about two people. Purdue says the one thing you need is fresh, small mulberry leaves free of pesticides. If there is even a small quantity of pesticide, the silkworm will die. The practice needs to be very clean for the worm and for the environment. Purdue says with silk production, you create one job with one hectare. With soybean production, you need 300 hectares to create one job. And in soy, you also need a lot of investment to produce the beans, such as large-scale machines to prepare the soil, spread pesticide and herbicide, and to harvest the soybeans. Silk production proves very beneficial for rural communities. It creates more jobs and a stronger community than other crops that it compares to. We know that when there's more people involved in these smaller production farms, you generally see better attended rural schools and an increased ability for the community to provide social services. You keep enough of an economy going to create generally a good life for those in the region. While Brazilian silk follows the multi-millennia old traditions brought to the Val de Seda via Japanese immigration to the region, the fibers production by humans predates industrialized fossil fuel-based agriculture, and yet the fiber itself has somehow been deemed unsustainable by a privately funded U.S.-based textile sustainability tool known as the HIG Material Sustainability Index, also known as the HIG MSI. This is the most common tool used by the global fashion industry to make sustainability assessments and thus to guide the raw material purchasing decisions for hundreds and thousands of companies. The tool ranks silk as the most carbon dioxide emitting and polluting fiber. While materials like polyester, which come from fossilized carbon, are ranked as the most sustainable fibers. I wanted to know Burdue's take on how this has impacted the industry and how it has affected the growers. We see that we, the silk people and the silk community, we see that silk is being targeted because they are using new metric based on a cradle-to-gate concept. And they are using this cradle-to-gate concept to spread the information that polyester environmental impact is 30 times smaller than silk environmental impact. And to make this statement, they have considered non-scientific and non-representative data about silk life cycle assessment. And the impact of polyester, they have considered only up to the fabric production and effects of garment care, microplastic water pollution, and millions of tons of polyester garment disposal every year are conveniently out of this so-called scientific and transparent index to evaluate sustainability. And this is what we see. Now is a good time to introduce my second guest, Veronica Casatli, who holds a bachelor's and master's in economics from the London School of Economics. Her first job was with the Overseas Development Institute in St. Lucia, working on agricultural economics. She since has made her way into sustainable fashion assessments and analysis. Now back to the aforementioned HIG MSI. The current textile industry standards for sustainability decouple environmental impact from socioeconomic impact. 
but they would leave you to believe that perhaps without saying as much, that maybe all of these things are still being considered. You don't get the sense that they're leaving anything out. They sound very robust about their claims. Even to the point where they say that they're adhering to the sustainable development goals. They say that the HIG measures social impact and so on. It just doesn't. <laughs> if you go to the HIG MSI, there are five indicators, the HIG Material Sustainability Index. The HIG Material Sustainability Index is what a lot of major brands use to measure their impact and their sustainability. And it has five indicators and not one of them is socioeconomic. It's things like global warming potential, water consumption, toxicity, eutrophication, nothing about socioeconomic impact. I asked Kasatli how silk was measured using the HIG MSI. She notes in her description of how this took place through something called an LCA. To briefly describe what that is, an LCA is a life cycle assessment. These assessments aim to measure the environmental impact of a material. They got it from Qantas, which is one of these many companies that supplies LCAs for these very substantial sums of money. And they have a database called the WALDB. And apparently, the Higgs says this is where they get their data from. It took me a very long time to find out which LCA Qantas were using, but it turns out that it is a single LCA, which was published, I think, in 2014 by the Oxford Silk Group, which looks at the practices of 100 silk farmers in Tamil Nadu in 2006, Tamil Nadu, India, that is, which they added some cultivation recommendations from Andhra Pradesh from 2013. They, in fact, didn't have irrigation data for these farmers, so they used rainfall from Bengaluru to <laughs> estimate the amount of irrigation required in Dampuri, Tamil Nadu. I mean, these places are all hours by car apart. I think that Andhra Pradesh is like 13 hours by car from Dampuri. Already, this is problematic. Kasatli says the authors of the Silk study said that this was the best available data that they could find at the time. They were never pretending to produce a study of global silk. They were rather attempting to highlight worst practices in silk production that people might want to address. And so they made this LCA, and The Hague has quite literally lifted this LCA and said this represents global silk production. She says this is unmitigated nonsense. But there we are. The International Sericulture Committee protested to the SAC about this at the end of 2020, and the SAC were not really interested. So in fact, the Sericulture Commission filed a complaint with the Federal Trade Commission, your U.S. Federal Trade Commission, at the beginning of 2021. And on June the 16th, 2021, the Federal Trade Commission wrote back to say that they had added the Sustainable Apparel Coalition to their list of companies of interest. So who is currently defining the global sustainability conversation in fashion? And what generally do we see in terms of their backgrounds? How are they funded? She says the largest global player in the sustainable fashion space is the Sustainable Apparel Coalition, or SAC. This organization was founded by Patagonia with Walmart, and eventually many other brands and manufacturers joined. Basically, we're looking at the major initiatives being entirely industry created. And when I say industry, I mean actually the largest fast fashion and athleisure brands, entirely industry created and pretty much entirely industry funded. There's been a proliferation of other initiatives. Some of them started independently, but many of them now are financed by 
some group of either the SAC or Textile Exchange or Laudes Foundation, which is a private foundation that belongs to the Brenkmeyer family, who own, amongst other things, CNA. As Kasatli properly stated in the report, The Great Greenwashing Machine, major brands have developed their own sustainability efforts. And many are struggling to meet their goals because they're using partial definitions of sustainability and a very selective implementation process. Consider this. The price differential between polyester and silk. Zhao says polyester is about $1 per kilo and silk $65 per kilo. Purdue offers data on how many people globally are engaged in the production of silk. He says the social relevance of silk appears when we talk about these major producing countries. In 2020, the production of raw silk yarn reached 92,000 tons. According to this recent study, with these 92,000 tons, more than 12 million jobs were created. Among these, 8 million were small farm households. Silkculture and silk industry accounts for more than 20% of the general income of the population in Uzbekistan. It is remarkable. Silk offers good opportunities for hero women to start their own business, as you know, not only hearing the silk warm, but reeling the cocoon and uh, weaving a fabric and producing some uh, handcraft item and selling it. So in Uzbekistan, about 90% of uh, people working with silk are women. And the silk production is also a form of social protection for the poorest segments of the population. With low investment in a mulberry tree, you can have something with value to sell after about a month's time. He says it's light work that brings significant additional income to the elderly and the differently abled. It provides social aspects to work and women's empowerment. These common aspects are found in each of the major super-producing countries, from China to Brazil. I was curious about the planting of all these trees and the photosynthetic carbon capture that they provide. Purdue has done some work on the carbon footprint along with researchers from Sao Paulo State University and others. They wrote a paper about the mitigation of the carbon footprint of silk manufacturing through the carbon that is sequestered by mulberry trees. We believe that this could be a way to spread and to let know for more people the great importance of having the mulberry to the silk production. And what we have is that to have one tone of uh, silk fiber produced, mulberry trees, they will take out from the atmosphere 735 tons of carbon, CO2. So this is the relationship that we have about mitigation. It's clear that bringing the work, the philosophy, and the approach of rural communities into the center of sustainability conversations would support a more authentic conversation about how to achieve climate stability while retaining livelihood. What I've observed is that there's very few crops that will keep people employed on small acreage, and crops that can also employ women consistently. It's a very rare niche that protects women and other community members who could be more vulnerable in agriculture or the economy writ large. When I hear that over a million acres of mulberry farms have disappeared, my sense is that that's definitely land that's going to be consolidated. <laughs> 
here in Brazil, with the same investment, low investment that is needed to start the silk production, it is not possible to start any other crop that gives relatively the same amount of silk. Because a grape will be a very profitable crop per hectare. But the investment you need to start the production of grape is uh, very high, and it will take years. The silk grower community has been forced to justify its existence as sustainable. And as Kasatli tells us, the irony of that is not lost on those who've looked into its history. Silk, it's almost a myth now how silk production started in China and the silk cocoon that fell into the Empress's cup of tea and so on. But basically, they found in a Neolithic site in Zhejiang, they found a utensil that had images of silkworms on it. And this utensil dates from 4,000 BC. So we're talking something like 6,000 years ago. They appear to have been producing silk in China. And they still produce silk, or they would if it was more profitable. And the notion that something that has been produced continually in the same place for 6,000 years is somehow the world's least sustainable fiber, as the Hig MSI claims. I mean, you're looking at this and you think, well, how can this be possible? If it's so unsustainable, how can they still be producing it in the same place? In many instances, in exactly the same manner as you're producing silk in 15th and 16th century, they still use the same dikes. And you think, well, how can this be unsustainable? The evidence is there on the ground that it is sustainable. They're still doing it. The Hig MSI utilizes what we call cradle-to-gate boundaries. That means that the very beginning stages of a fiber's creation through the manufacturing process. The reality is that those boundaries have been shown to measure different impacts at different stages of the life cycle of a fiber, depending on the fiber. It's the comparisons between fibers that are difficult to make, especially when the boundaries are shifting between how we're measuring these materials. I'm only talking about the MSI, which is supposed to be what enables people, brands, consumers, to choose more sustainable fabrics and fibers. And this, I think it's intolerable. In a democratic society, that what consumers are going to be told is more sustainable or less sustainable is determined by private corporations behind a paywall. In a democratic society, we have the right as consumers and as voters to go and see what the data is, where it came from, who collected it, how, who peer-reviewed it, and so on. And you can't do that. And the fact of the matter is that nobody peer-reviewed it. It's something that was created by the SAC that only the SAC knows. And on an ethical level, I think this is unacceptable. If we're going to have legislation based on the purported environmental scores, if we're going to have labeling that consumers are going to see based on purported environmental scores, then this has to be completely open. It has to be completely transparent. It has to be based on accurate representative data. And everybody has to have a right to look at it. And if you are a fiber producer and you feel that your fiber has been unfairly singled out, as we know, alpaca, leather and silk all did back in 2020, then you have a right to seek some kind of redress, none of which exists at the present time. If you were going to try to compare one thing to another, an apple to an apple, an orange to an orange, or silk to cotton to polyester to nylon, you would want to make sure 
that you were setting the boundaries similarly for each fiber before you started measuring and before you started comparing them to each other. These LCAs don't all share the same boundaries and the same methodologies. For instance, you have the upstream impacts of manure included for silk, which makes silk look like has very high GWP and eutrophication. And you have the upstream impacts of manure not included for organic cotton, which makes organic cotton look like it has very low GWP and eutrophication. In fact, the recommended application of manure in India for cotton and silk are not hugely dissimilar per hectare. So when you look at these numbers, you're not seeing a real difference. You're simply seeing a difference in the way the manure was accounted for. And obviously, this is extremely misleading. Kasatli writes about how we will mitigate and hopefully ameliorate the conditions that are causing climate change and how we are actually going to reverse some of the damage. How this actually is done will require a very different approach to measurement. She and other international thinkers are recommending that we move from a cradle-to-gate to a cradle-to-grave understanding of our textiles. If we looked at the materials that we wear from the conception point to the end or the finality of that garment's life, what kinds of impacts would start to be included in our measurement framework that we're just not including now? The most important determinant of how sustainable a garment is, because clothing is not Kleenex, it's not a sandwich, the most important determinant of how impactful it is in its life is how many times it's worn. And obviously, the more times you can increase the number of wears, the lower the impact per wear becomes. And this applies not just in terms of environmental impact, it also applies to your own wallet. So this is something that I think we should be transmitting to consumers. It's, look, guys, don't be fooled that it says $12 or $10 when you see it on the Shein site. How many times will you wear it? Will it have any resale value when you're finished with it? Or would you be better saving up, choosing something a little better made, that you'll wear any more times, just trying to alter the way consumers perceive their garment purchases. That's really where we need the sustainable apparel space to move to. We need to move it away from being funded by and run by the major athleisure and fast fashion brands and basically people from sourcing. And we need to move it into the academic, the intellectual space. We need to get the people from leading universities, from leading research institutes, from leading agricultural research stations, who actually know these things in detail, who when they publish work, it has to be peer-reviewed. You can't publish a report on snails in an academic journal without it being peer-reviewed. How can we allow people to publish sustainability data without anybody peer-reviewing it? Unless people keep selling these garments to each other, They often find their way into some kind of bin, and then in many instances are exported to either Ghana, Chile, or another location in the global south. When people discover that the textiles are worthless, they dump them. And sometimes they burn them. A lot of these clothes have been blended with plastic, cotton poly blends, or just straight-up polyester garments. So when communities end up having to burn these garments... They're burning plastic. Now that we understand the foundation, which is fairly rickety, for how we're defining the impact of silk and these other fibers, I wanted to get a feel from Kasatli about how she weighs the role of European policy 
in setting out to define sustainable textile for the European community. But it's really important that we all look at what the EU is doing, because obviously this is going to set the tone for what comes afterwards. And it's much easier to stop something before it becomes a law than it is to stop it once it has become law. So we're talking politicians, we're talking legislators. These people have many, many topics on their hands to look at. And it's all very complex. It's all very detailed. And so there's a role for as many voices as possible to step up and say, hang on, guys, you forgot about this aspect. You forgot about that aspect. And try to make it easier for our legislators and for our politicians to understand what it is that matters. She adds that microfiber release, which is the fact that all clothes release fibers every day, won't be part of the conversation either. Some microfibers, particularly plastic microfibers, are increasingly being seen to have environmental problem and human health implications. I wanted to know what recommendations Kasatli would like to see if we were to create policy that would bring us to the point where we might see true sustainability or policy recommendations that could at least move us that direction. In part one, we basically, Great Green Washing Machine part one, we made two recommendations. And the first was that fashion corporations and global policymakers must assess the socioeconomic impact of fiber production in producer countries and place this front and center in all sustainability claims and rankings. It is really vital that we look very carefully at the impact of not buying cotton, for instance, for Benin, because so much of the global South, so many countries, there really is no other employment opportunity. There is no other income opportunity than farming. And so simply saying, oh, well, we won't buy cotton and that'll take those number of GHGs off the market and that mm -hmm. amount of water will not be consumed. Well, actually, no, because these farmers are going to carry on farming. So what are they going to do instead? And when we start looking at it like that, would we be better instead of constantly investing in new fibers? And would we be better investing in helping these farmers to produce as efficiently as possible, both in terms of environmental sustainability and in terms of their own income? And then the second recommendation that we made for Breaking Washing Machine Part One was that regulatory frameworks must include living wages, because that's another thing that they want to leave out of the path and that the German Grüne Knopf wants to leave out, is they want to tell you something sustainable without mentioning the fact that this was made by somebody who was not paid a living wage. In the largest producing fiber countries, the minimum wage is only 50% of a living wage. So it's nonsense to tell someone that that's a sustainable model. It really isn't. And consumers are being grossly misled if they're being told that something made by someone who was not paid a living wage is sustainable. Moving on to the next report, the Breaking Washing Machine Part 2, we then said the recommendation three was that governments must require fashion brands to provide comprehensive, accurate, and verified sustainability information. Private corporations cannot be allowed to unilaterally decide upon the impact of different fibers. Obviously, this is much easier said than done. And there needs to be a lot of discussion about what constitutes verifiable information. And then recommendation four was global resources must be better managed to promote the use of farmed fibers and co-products so that we don't have wastage with wool that is being landfilled or hides that are second quality being landfilled. We actually use these. There's a lot of wastage going on at the moment in a resource strap world. Again, that's going to be a difficult one to assess. It's going to be a difficult one to implement. And then recommendation five, which is really, really easy, which is reduce the use of plastic fibers. Her recommendations hit home for me. 
with many years under the belt of trying to improve on-farm income and looking at the requirements of how we build decent and meaningful livelihoods in textile manufacturing, I know that if these recommendations were acted upon and implemented, it would create the kind of change required to meet the challenges. This episode is made possible because of all the people who work behind the scenes on it. I'd like to thank my producer, Jennifer O'Neill, audio editor, Bethany Sands, and intern, Maha Sanad. I'd also like to thank Whetstone founder, Stephen Satterfield, Whetstone head of podcasts, Celine Glacier, sound engineer, Max Kotelchuk, music director, Catherine Yang, associate producer, Quentin LeBeau, Production assistant Shabnam Ferdowsi and sound intern Simon Lavendar. The cover art by Whetstone art director Alex Bowman. You can learn more about this podcast at whetstoneradio.com, on Instagram and Twitter at Whetstone Radio, and subscribe to our YouTube channel, Whetstone Radio Collective, for more podcast video content. You can learn more about all things happening at Whetstone at whetstonemagazine.com.